Okay, so Andrew, you were asking about the polyword tanha. I had to count on my fingers to get it up to number eight. <laughs> the tanha is number eight on the 12 steps of Paticca Samuppada. Uh, and therefore, um, it's an integral part of the teaching, or it's a, it's a, let us say, part of the process or formations in the mind that bring about suffering. Mm -hmm. And that uh, tanha often in the Mahayana uh, teachings say that tanha is in fact the entire uh, second noble truth, that what is the cause of suffering is wanting things or, or, or grasping. Uh, that's only part of the story, but it's useful. The whole story is, is that it's not just tanha in the sense of wanting something, but it's also the tanha in the sense of wanting to get rid of something. An example of that is, is that you have just cut your finger with a knife. The tanha that you want is you want desperately to take care of that knife wound. All right, you, you, you get up and you go run to the bathroom and you wrap it up or you wipe it or you suck on it or you do all kinds of things because of tanha, because you don't like the fact that you just cut your finger. So it's not just tanha in the sense I want something that I don't have. Tanha is often trying to get rid of something that we're putting up with. We don't want to put up with it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, there, there's another quality of that, and that is, is that the second noble truth not only has just greed and ill will as tanha, but it also has the quality of delusion or ignorance. And we can say that basically, uh, where is the ignorance in the cutting of the finger? The answer to that is cutting your finger is a pretty ignorant thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so you could say then that the tanha is the result of wanting the finger to be whole again when we have just ignorantly cut it. So if we're not doing things ignorantly, we're not cutting ourselves, therefore we're not in great desperation to undo the damage that we just did. There you go with the second noble truth. The end of suffering is look at what you're doing. Don't cut yourself. Because if you cut yourself, you'll go into a state of tanha or wanting something. Uh, this is an important lesson because a lot of people will think automatically that liking something is a good feeling and and not liking or hating or having ill will for something is then negative and seeing a positive and a negative that way. Mm -hmm. But a better way of looking at it, of wanting something because we like it, means that we want something that we don't have and that's a form of suffering, but it's actually wanting something is the tanha. Wanting something that we don't have. If we didn't want it, then if we hadn't, for instance, cut our finger, then we wouldn't want to get the finger fixed. Mm -hmm. Or if we, um, uh, let us say, see a beautiful girl and we like the fact that she's all dolled up, that's okay to actually like it, but I don't have to want her because if I want her, now that's tanha. Tanha is the wanting. Now, the, the wanting comes from um, uh, the feeling 
of liking and not liking. But we can actually have our feelings of liking and not liking and um, not go into suffering. That, that, that it takes an ignorant quality to it. An example of that with the cutting of the finger, let's go to the point of that this is a seamstress who has just now put her finger under the needle and the needle of the sewing machine came down on her finger and so she backs the needle off. She sucks it a bit, but she doesn't bother to do anything because she's more interested in doing her sewing. And so she just sews right along with that hole in her finger. And later on, she'll take care of the finger. The tanha will come later. But the same thing is also true with the automobile mechanic who is there working on his car. And uh, while he is operating that wrench to take the car apart or whatever, he busts his knuckle. But he doesn't care about the busted knuckle. He's there doing his business. It's only after he's finished working on the car and goes into the house and starts to wash his hands, that's when it hurts. That's when Tanha comes. Yes, Robert. Uh, so, questions. I remember when I was at Wat Swan Milk all those years ago, uh, Dama Vidu gave a lecture about how um, ignorance and aversion were really the roots of the hindrances. Um, could you perhaps discuss the relationship of, um, uh, of ignorance and aversion to the hindrances, particularly Tana? Because when you were talking about Tana in the context of you want something that, you know, you just want, which is kind of the ignorance approach versus the Tanha that comes from not wanting something so much that you're wanting to not want it, which seems like aversion, right? Okay. So, well, yeah. that's the whole point. Uh, let us take it in from two perspectives. One is the perspective that the hindrances are interrelated. They're not separate. Right. It's almost like the hindrances are served like an apple pie fresh out of the oven, right? And that the pieces of pie are the way that we divide out the hindrance and says this part of the pie is uh, this kind of hindrance, that part of the pie is that kind of hindrance. But the reality is, is that we just kind of artificially chose where we were going to make those cuts. That really hindrances is whatever it is that hinders us from being in a good, pleasant state right now. Anything that does that. Mm. So that's the hindrances, is that they're all together, they're all mixed together. That, in fact, greed and ill will are the two sides of the same coin. Mm. Uh, that restlessness and greed are related. Doubt and greed are related. They're all interrelated with each other, just like they were all the same pie that was baked. And when we're cutting apart and saying this is this is greed, we're forgetting the fact that, no, that section of pie, you you were the one who made those cuts, that this is just hindrance. The whole pie is hindrance. Right. But we, we make these distinctions in there so that the students can understand the various kinds of hindrances and hindering thoughts that there are. Mm. So, uh, tanha itself is a hindrance. And it can be manifested as a hindrance in the sense of wanting something that we don't have. Or maybe being ig uh, irritated that we don't have it. 
Mm. Or that we can think about how can I get it, how can I get it, how can I get it, and that is the, the restlessness of the mind. And then we can have thoughts like, oh, I don't know if I'll ever be able to get that thing. It's just so much work. And now you've got the mind full of doubt. But in all cases, it had to do with wanting something or tanha. And the tanha gave rise to these groups of uh, thoughts. And that you can actually call that pi, that whole uh, sum total of these hindrances, we can label that as unwholesome thought. Ooh. So tanha brings on unwholesome thought. If we want something, we're going to be doing thoughts about the fact that we want something. If we don't want anything, then we're uh, less likely to be hindered. Does that make sense? Tanha is actually a, uh, in and of itself, can be thought of as a hindrance, wanting something you don't have. But it gives rise to all of the other stuff, like thinking about how can I get that which I want. And so all of the hindrances are there, uh, one after another. And when we can see those things, we can recognize, wait a minute, right now I don't have that which I thirst for. Maybe if I stopped thirsting for it, I would be better off. Because it doesn't matter how much I'm thirsting for that thing, I ain't going to get it right now. Uh, uh, question right? two. And so that's bringing wisdom into it. And we can say, okay, well, I don't have to have it right now. I'm going to be okay right now without it. And so the tanha comes to a stop. I don't have to have that right now. I'm already okay. And so now we've thrown that hindrance out of the mind and we can just relax. It's a very simple right. process, not complicated. Right. Until we add all of these crazy poly words like tanha. But just use the word tanha and think of it, it means thirst. You're thirsty. Thirsty for the girl, thirsty for the Mercedes Benz, thirsty for the bigger house, thirsty for a new job. All of those kinds of things that we want. We can call that tanha because we want them. Rather than enjoying the show. If you're enjoying the show, then the show's okay. But if you've got tanha, that means you want to change the show. You want something out of it. You want it to be different than it is. You want to make it better. Make an improvement here. And so that is tanha, is wanting things to be different than they are. Wanting. But tanha sounds like a great, great big word, so we can use some English great big words. Wanting is a little word, but uh, thirst is a big word. How about uh, longing Ooh. or desire? Greed. I mean, we've got some really big, heavy-duty words in there, but uh, the easy way to look at it is anytime you, you just want something, that's a form of suffering. How much you want it, depends upon how much you're suffering. Oh, no, wait a minute. The, how much you're suffering depends upon how much you want it. And if you get yourself to the state to where you don't want anything, then now you're not suffering. So in a way, the Mahayana are correct that all of suffering is caused by tanha.
longing, wanting things. Ooh. Wanting things Ooh. to be different than they are. Ooh. Go ahead, Robert. So the ignorance and the aversion, um, is that, so those are not, so those are the sources of the hindrances, correct? Say again. So the ignorance and the aversion, those are ultimately the source, the root of hindrance, correct? Well, you could say ultimately every every suffering comes from ignorance. Right. All it does, because if you um, let us also say it like this, that there are two kinds of ignorance. There is delusional ignorance and then there is wise ignorance. Mm. What is wise ignorance is ignorance that you know that you don't know the answer. Delusion right. is when you think you know the answer when in fact you don't. Right. Okay, and in the poly, in the poly, we can look at the, 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 the word itself is ajiva. And we can say that that can be translated as not knowing or knowing not. If it's not knowing, then it's simple ignorance because I know that I don't know. But knowing not means that I think that I know, but I'm wrong. That's delusion. Or another word for it is denial. That we want to, uh, to hold to um, a viewpoint when all the evidence proves that it's not correct. Does that answer, uh, Andrew, does that uh, help you with the understanding of Tanha? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Okay, let's look that uh, at the Tanha then uh, in relationship to the other parts of the eight, uh, excuse me, the 12 steps of dependent origination, because I said that it's step number 12. Um, basically, the second half of Paticca Samapada is the basic the story or the event sequence one after another that happens in the mind that leads us into a woeful state of dissatisfaction. But there is uh, also the earlier part of the uh, Paticca Samapada, uh, the first part of it, number one up through step six and seven, which point out that in that part of it, which has to do with the body, the feelings, perception, consciousness, and the way that we uh, put things together, in that group, there is no self. That the self arises after tanha arises. Mm. That when there is no tanha, there is no self to arise. Why? Because if we don't want anything, then there's no self to want something. And if you have uh, tanha, then that wanting requires a wanter. We create the self in order to do the, the, uh, the, the, the clinging that happens after the, uh, the grasping. So tanha is like grasping for, but once we actually arrive and grab a hold of something, who or what is it that does the grabbing a hold of? That's the self. So the sequence of events is that once we have a, uh, let us say, an idea 
or a thought or something that happens within the mind, that that thought or that thing that happened in the mind contacts us in a way that gives rise to a feeling. Let's say a feeling of liking or not liking. So let's look at the sequence in the sense of the guy walks into 7-Eleven and he sees what he describes in his own mind as a, a store clerk, this drop dead gorgeous. All right. The fact is, is that she's a store clerk. The drop dead gorgeous is something that he's done in his mind with it. <laughs> All right. That it's just a female. Females are females until the guy wants them. And then the idea is, is that he wants this one because he's decided that she's drop dead gorgeous. So the drop dead gorgeous babe impacts him. And he has a great big good feeling, a gushy feeling. Wow, I like that. But that ignorance is involved immediately wraps, rots into, I like it, therefore I want it. And this is the place where a lot of guys misunderstand the teaching of the Buddha. They say, oh, well, if tanha is grasping and clinging after something that I want, I should stop liking it. No, liking is something that happens on a regular basis. You go around liking and not liking all kinds of things. Sometimes it gets us into trouble and sometimes it doesn't. Just because you like something doesn't mean that it's going to bring on tanha. You don't have to like something. But in this case, she's drop dead gorgeous. The guy likes her. Therefore, he wants her. Because he wants her. He has to go do something to get her. So the grasping is the tanha, the clinging. Now, let us say the grasping is getting him over to the counter. And then the clinging is asking her out. But he's got to get from the part of the uh, from the door or wherever he came in or wherever he is with the thought that he's got to. I like this. Therefore, I've got to go over to it in order to get it. That traveling distance is the tanha. We're, we're moving from the state of where we are into a state of what we want, which means that we become dissatisfied with the state that we're in now going towards that which we want. Once we try to grab hold of it, like chatting her up or doing something like that, then that's when it becomes clinging. And the Buddha talks about clinging as that there are four modes of clinging. Even though there are three kinds of feelings, the three don't map into four kinds of clinging so easily. But you can see that the kinds of clinging that are there are really worthwhile looking at. One is the clinging to the self itself. Another one is clinging to materialism. Another one is clinging to uh, way things should be, rights, rules, rituals, uh, the parent ego state, society, and all of that. And then the last form of clinging is the clinging to ideas and views and whatnot like that. For an example is, is that some women will be very beautiful in some situations, and that same woman dressed in the same clothing is not beautiful in another situation because the rules have changed. And so those rules then uh, will affect what we think is beautiful and what is not. And so all of those rules that we have inside is part of the way that we cook things up 
in order for us to like it, that we don't realize that those feelings that we have of liking and not liking, we kind of think that those are natural. No, what we like is learned behavior. We were taught what to learn, or uh, taught what to like and taught what not to like. And so our liking and not liking at that level is still uh, learned behavior based upon the kind of clinging that we were taught to do. So naturally, we're going to, when we want something, we're going to cling for it in a certain way. This is all very interesting in the sense that when we recognize these four modes of clinging actually correspond to modern science's view of instincts. To where clinging to material possessions is the procreation instinct, clinging to rites, rules, and rituals is basically the same thing as the nesting or the herding instinct, and clinging to views and the way things should be, that's the territorial instinct. But the big one, the one that's really the most powerful and dangerous is the self-preservation instinct, which gives rise to the concept of me, not just that uh, wanting, but I want it. That's mine. Ownership. So the ownership of property then is part of the, uh, the selfishness, even though that is clung to and we think of it as materialism, we actually uh, take on and own material possessions because we, we uh, delusionally think that that possession is going to make me feel safe. Yeah. So many guys will think that, oh, if I get a trophy girlfriend, then I will be safe. But in fact, if you get a trophy girlfriend, you really are in danger. But the delusion is, oh, I've got the girl of my dreams, therefore I'm going to be fit for life. No, the girl of your dreams is the same girl in a whole bunch of guys' dreams, and you've got a lot of competition on your hands. <laughs> but anyway, the whole sequence then is from uh, making up some story to ourselves, the salayatana gives rise to that contacting us, which is tanha, excuse me, is pasta which gives rise to the feelings of liking or not liking, which then ignorantly gives rise to tanha, which then gives rise to clinging, which is upadana in the Pali. And then from the, uh, from the upadana or the clinging, because we're already clinging, that is actually the birth of the self, and it is reborn in one of the woeful states, like the hungry ghost, which means I want her, but I can't have her, or the or the state of uh, anxiety, anger, that would be the woeful state of hell, or fear itself would be the woeful state of the Asura, the uh, the Titans, the ones who were all dressed up for battle and have no place to go because they're afraid to go to battle. And then the last one, which is the one which most Westerners stay most of their time in, is the, is the woeful state of a dumb animal. We spend a lot of time in the woeful state of being a dumb animal because we're doing what we were told to do. Doing what you're told to do is like a plow horse has been put with a plow. They strapped him together. They, uh, they striped the horse to make him pull that plow. And that poor horse has to plow up his own pasture. 
all the succulent little plants and everything that the horse was eating on. Now the horse has got to destroy that stuff by plowing it all up. And guess what? The horse doesn't get any benefit out of that plowed field. The humans eat all of that food. Well, that's what happens to each one of us starting at about the age of six when we're given uh, uh, plow fields to plow up. Here we are playing with our toys and we say, no, put down your toys and do your homework. Pick up your toys. Don't play with them. Pick them up. Do what I tell you to do. And so we start off then in that realm as children of going along to getting along, which is basically the, the investing instinct. We do what we're told to do. And we do that the rest of our lives. Only the only difference now is we don't have mommy and daddy to tell us what to do. We remember what mommy and daddy told us to do. And we keep telling ourselves that same thing over and over and over again. All of these rules that we've got to follow. And then we give ourselves rules to follow and we don't like it. And so now we have this internal dialogue. You ought to go meditate. No, I don't want to meditate. You want to go meditate. No, I want to. Med- I don't want to meditate. If you don't meditate, something really bad's going to happen. Well, something really bad's happening right now. You're telling me to meditate and I don't want to. <laughs> and these are the kind of internal dialogues that we have that are based upon a t- kind of tanha that is not something that we actually want. Is something that we are told to want or should want. And sometimes we those things that we should want, we don't want. We in fact a lot of things that we were told to, that we should want, we don't want it. Intentionally we don't want that. I'll do anything but that <laughs> because you told me to do that, and so I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> well, that happens a lot. And in fact, both of these sides happen to each child. Some things we're told to do and we do it, but we don't like it. Other things we're told to do and we rebel against it. But very rarely do we ever do what we're told to do and like it, to enjoy ourselves. This is where, that's what's missing in Western culture is to teach our kids not just to learn their ABCs, but getting a big kick out of learning the ABCs. Wow, that's a cue, isn't it? Wow, I saw that before. But no, we, um, we, 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 we flush at our kids. And so because we were fussed at as kids, we grow up fussing at ourselves. And we wind up in these woeful states. We wind up angry. We wind up um, uh, sad. We wind up doing what we're told to do and grumbling about it. We wind up not doing what we want to do because we're afraid. Or we wind up going and doing a bunch of stuff because we think it'll make us safe. An example of that is the cell phone. I would say that most of the time when somebody leaves the house, they take their cell phone with them because of safety issues. They feel insecure without the cell phone. Maybe somebody will call. Or maybe somebody will uh, uh, rob me and I can have the cell phone. And while he's robbing me, I'm going to dial 911. Have you ever had that kind of thought? <laughs> if you're getting robbed, the first thing you're going to take is that cell phone before you ever get 911 dialed. <laughs> but we still have the delusion that the cell phone makes us safe. The question is, can we feel safe just in general without all of our material possessions? And we feel safe without the cell phone. So 
the tanha then is uh, the grasping and clinging that we have in order for us to feel safe. If we already feel safe, then there's no reason to want something to make us feel safe. And so we can stop that process. We can break that off someplace. And this is the teaching of the Buddha is how far deep into the process of Paticca Samapada do we go before we wake up? And if we can wake up at the point of contact, then that means that we can feel the way that we want to feel. We can manage our own feelings. This is what Anapanasati is actually trying to teach, is to teach that we can wake up and make a choice about how we feel. And the way that we make that choice about how we feel is by changing the kind of thoughts that we have, because the kind of thoughts that we have determine how we feel. And if we have thoughts of uh, clinging, thoughts of tanha, then we're going to feel tanha. If we have thoughts of everything is okay, everything's fine, no problems, then we'll feel like everything is fine, no problems. And so there's that uh, thinking, feeling connection. And that we can put that into play so that we don't, we can literally talk ourselves out of wanting something rather than having to work at and feel bad because we're working at it to get it. And often when we get it, now we have to put up with keeping it. I mean, if I get all of that money, now I've got to invest it wisely. Because if I invest it badly, I'll feel bad again. So in the beginning, all I had to do was to worry about how I feel about uh, the way this moment is. Now I have to worry about two things, myself and my money. And if you've got a great big mansion, now you've got to worry about the mansion and the money and the me. And if you get a trophy wife, now you've got to worry about the mansion and the money and the wife and the me. <laughs> and so much for Tanha. Because we think that if we get what we want, we'll be happy. But in fact, when we get what we want, now the other side of the tanha is that I've got to keep it. I can't just let it fall apart. Oh, uh, uh, question slash comment. The, the tanha being connected to personality view, I think, is a really critical point. Um, and this kind of gets back to the point about the stubbornness you know, related to not wanting to give up the tanha because you think it's the right tanha. You think you're ju completely justified because of society and, and all of this. And and I think, you know, if one does give up their personality view, the tanha immediately diminishes because uh, it's not doesn't go away, but it diminishes a lot. Um, because um, if you don't see yourself as an ego that needs to be defended, you know, mm -hmm. you're not going to be craving things. And this is why people get so stubborn in their their cravings and their aversions, because they feel that to give them up is to give up who they are. And that's terrifying for them because that who they are gives them some sense of security. Absolutely. You can see that in, in American politics big time. OK, the example is, is that I voted for Trump. Because I voted for Trump, that means that Trump is a good guy in my mind, and I voted for him because I'm a good guy also. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I do not want to see Trump becoming 
to look, in my mind, a bad guy, because if I see him as a bad guy and I put my vote on him, that means that I'm associated with Trump. That's one of the reasons why people who voted for Trump do not want to see Trump the way that he really is, because that will make them feel bad about who they are. The, the reality is, is that everybody who voted for Trump knew exactly what he was like, and that's exactly who they are, but they don't want to think of themselves as a bad Donald Trump, uh, a little poor bad Donald Trump. They want to see Donald Trump as a big guy who's really stiff and excellent and all of that kind of stuff. And so they don't really want to see the reality of it. Why? Because if they see the reality of Donald Trump, then that means that they won't, they'll have to see the reality of themselves. And nobody wants to do that. Not Trump voters anyway. <laughs> well, what's hilarious is if they actually did it, they'd, they'd enjoy it because they'd realize there is no self. You know, it's all just a moving process and flow and it changes and it's fine if it changes. It's fine if it doesn't change that much. But it's going to change anyway. And they would find and if they just took solace in that, they'd have a much better life. You know, yes. Right. But they are still at that level of, let us call it the level of first doubt. And that level of first doubt is who can I get to clean up my mess because I've already made the decision that I can't do it myself. Mm -hmm. OK, I can't do it myself. I need a Jesus. I need a plastic Jesus on the dashboard of my truck of life. Otherwise, I'm stuck. And our whole society um, operates like that. I mean, look at the number of businesses that have, even though we talk about our, our society being an individualistic, rugged individualist, you know, um, uh, the, the pioneer, the uh, pioneering spirit and all of that, this American. But look at it like this. Lawyers are in the business of doing things for other people who don't know how to do their own law stuff. Laws are so complicated that you need help to do your law. The taxes have become so complicated that you need help. You need an accountant to do your paperwork. Your human body has gotten so complicated that you need a doctor because you can't cure yourself. Also, you need to buy clothing that fits the, uh, uh, the community up to the community standards. I can't let, just make my own clothes. In fact, my mom made some of my shirts and I never liked them <laughs> because my mom made my shirts. <laughs> it's um, actually quite sweet. Well, that's what you do in the 1950s when you're sewing, when you got a sewing machine, people don't have sewing machines anymore. That wasn't sweet. It was necessity. What had been sweet for me is mom to go buy me a damn shirt. <laughs> but I'm, I'm teasing at that level. But the point is, is that the, um, the way that we think is actually done according to how we were raised, that we think that we're individuals, where in fact we're not, that we go by the herding instinct. And yet, we also have this quality that we can't do it by ourselves. Well, where does what we can't do it by ourselves conflict with the pioneering spirit where the guy goes out and he does everything by himself? He works on his own car, he, he knits his own shoes, or he cobbles his own shoes, 
everything he does by himself. We don't live that kind of society. We live in a society where everything is in mutual cooperation. So the doctors even go to the lawyers and the accountants go to the lawyers, but the accountants go to the doctors Well, the lawyers go to the doctors and everybody is mutually taking care of everybody else, but nobody feels well taken care of. But we all have this idea that I can't do it myself. So when it comes to... Um, let us call it personality problems or the Dhamma, we come to that with the idea, I can't do it myself. I need a plastic Jesus. I need a psychologist. I need a psychiatrist. I need a pill from a uh, psychiatrist. All of that kind of, I can't do it for myself. I need help. Mm-hmm. That's built into the whole issue then of when are we going to come around to the point that nobody is going to help you? Because that's actually the second noble truth. The real deep underlying message of the second noble truth is, hey, man, you got yourself into this mess. Only you can get you out. Mm -hmm. You cannot expect someone else to come in and and pull you out of this. Only you can do that. This is why we talk about it in the sense of tanha. It's not tanha in the world. It's not tanha that you were taught. It's the tanha that you have right here in your own mind right now. That's the tanha. It doesn't matter where it came from. Here it is, and only you can get it out of your mind. And so that brings about then the second level of doubt. And the second level of doubt has to do with once we recognize ain't nobody going to help me, now the question comes up, but can I help myself? Am I up to the task? And this is where most of the Western Buddhists languish for many, many years sometimes is languishing to figure out whether they're up to the task or not because they don't have the right tools. They still have the no, I'm not up to the task, but that again is a kind of clinging or a kind of hindrance that's in the mind. But yes, I can clean out my own mind. That would be an unhindering thought. But doubting can I clean out my own mind, that is another hindrance, and that's another form of clinging because we're actually clinging to or are grasping for some help on the outside. Rather than saying, no, the only way that we're really going to get over this is by taking the right effort. And we've got to put it in. We've got to pay the attention. Mm -hmm. Got to put some skin in this game. Got to put some work into it. And when we start putting that work into it and put some skin in the game, we start getting benefits out of it. Only then is that uh, kind of um, uh, doubt beginning to soften to the point that it will soften all the way to the point of, yes, I can. Yes, I can do this. Yes, Robert. Yeah, you so, can do it. <laughs> thanks. I know. <laughs> so, so I think one thing that, um, you know, in the Western Buddhist, you know, mistranslation of Tanha as such that it's desire or craving, right, as opposed to wanting what you can't have, which is, you know, your translation, which I think is so much better, in part because it solves the problem of, oh, is it bad for me to want to be a, a meditator? Is it bad for me to want to be enlightened? The answer to that yes, is no. Yes, it is, you because you're already enlightened. You're already a meditator. Get over it. 
Why do you want something you've already got? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You already have it. So therefore, it's not tanha. Because it's something that is available to you instantly. You know, whereas if you look at it as desire or craving, then it it becomes something far off. um, In in which case, like you can't, uh, you know, it's like you can't have it. But if you realize you have it, then it's not tanha at all. Right. You know, and you're wanting something There's a word have, for it. And you, yeah. There's a word for it, and the word actually comes out of Mahayana, uh, but the word is uh, desiring desirelessness. Right? Or wanting to be free. Well, you're right. already free. But right. wanting keeps you from being free. Desiring desirelessness. I mean, why do you want something? You can just not desire instead of wanting to not. You know what I mean? Like instead of thinking, mm-hmm. oh, I want to be free from desires, you can just think, oh, I'm fine right now. Right. So that's why I was using those that group of words that tanha can either be really, really super duper heavy special, which is the way that the, the Western Buddhists want to see everything. Right. Western Buddhism is trying to make everything super duper special. Because that's the Western mentality and exotic, right? Exotic and special and whoop de doo and bliss and uh, all of that kind of stuff. To where the real teachings of the Buddha is, everything is ordinary. Hey, man, get used to it. It's okay, like it is. So if yeah. you're if you're having experience and you're you're trying to say to yourself like, oh, I'm like this is fine, like everything is fine as it is right now, and then like another voice sort of in your head comes in and says, oh, no, no, I'm not. Is that that's the second le- the second level of doubt that you're talking about? Well, no, that's just another hindering thought. And you can then have the next thought after that is, aha, I see you. And yes, everything is okay. You're just in the habit of telling me things are not okay, but I know better, haha. And then the next thought is, well, things really aren't that good after all, but that's just another hindrance come up. And you can say, aha, I see you too. That this is the reason why things have to be repeated over and over and over and over again, because every one of us is in the grand habit of being in hindrances. Mm-hmm. And so that the easy default position is back into hindrance. And yeah. it takes extra work. It takes effort. It takes one's right noble effort, part of the Eightfold Noble Path, to keep coming back out of that over and over and over again. We keep winding up in the ditch. And it takes a little bit more effort to come out of the ditch than it does just to boogie on down the road. But every time we're boogieing, we're not watching where we're going, we wind up boogieing right into the ditch. And now we need to take the right effort to come out of the ditch so that we can boogie on down the road again. Right. So we have to take the right effort. The right effort is, is to come out of these hindering thoughts. It's funny. Right. It's like, there's a real... Attachment, a real attachment that can happen like to these to destructive patterns and thoughts and habits it doesn't I, I don't even understand I don't really understand it it's like even even like when I'm like really trying to like see through something or try and like get get away from some way of thinking like there's yeah there's a real a real uh magnetism to it or I don't know 
Well, when you're getting away from stuff, that means that you already have aversion for it. Right. Okay. And the statement that I'm making is, aha, I see you, Myra, almost as if we're really glad to see that hindrance. Mm. Well, the hindrance was there already. Let's be glad that we can see that it's a hindrance. Right. Rather than angry at the hindrance, because now that we're angry at it and want the hindrance to go away, guess what? That's just a new hindrance. Right. The, the new hindrance is in the mind, in the mind's moment right now. And so we have to practice over and over again. Let's just check what kind of thoughts we're having and take the effort to have wholesome thoughts rather than thoughts of wanting. We have thoughts of satisfaction instead, which don't want nothing. Yeah, Robert. So to complement that with something I think is, has been super helpful for me, you know, Don Morato had a great video at the UK Sangha. It was either the first or second video that he did with them. And he talked with a neuroscientist on the video, um, Debbie, you know, um, and uh, they were talking about rewiring the brain, right? So if you look at this from the brain science perspective, you know, every time you throw out a hindrance, you're actually creating like a new neural pathway of existing without... Or at least one neuron, maybe one neuron. Yeah. Not yeah the, one we neuron. don't pave the whole road, we just cover on one pothole. <laughs> yeah, just one pothole. And each time you cover a pothole, each time you rewire that brain just a little bit through repetition, it gets better and better, you know, every time. And it gets stronger and it gets easier. And so it might be hard right now. It was for me quite hard, you know, at the beginning. But over time, you just build and it gets a lot better. Right, yeah. I guess the real, you can real issue is just the habit of thinking that there's a problem to solve. <laughs> right. Where, in yeah, fact, I mean, there is no problem. And so we have to make the effort to say, wait a minute, there's no problem here. Mm-hmm. Right, and I would invite you as well to go look at videos from some of Damarado's more longtime students. Look at the first video, and then look at, like, the most recent. And you will see a big change, you know? And it's because, like, like check out mine, for example, and it's because of that repetition and just continually doing it over and over and over again, it does change your brain, you know, and it's really cool to watch that happen. Yes, it is. It's very cool. <laughs> I like it. It's a, it's a big trip to watch students making change. Yeah. You see, the Dhamma works. One student after another, after another, after another. All they have to do is just start practicing changing what's in the mind, and you begin to lighten up. It's a major change. Many people have uh, commented that their family notices the change. Right. Sometimes the family notices before the people themselves do. But over time, we can recognize, hey, I made some changes. I am not the person I used to be. Because we never were anyone to begin with. Right. All we were is just a grand total of lies that we were been told. And as we start cleaning out the lies, we change. Mm -hmm. We're not who we thought we were. We have been programmed. Mm-hmm. Who am I? I'm the program that was programmed. That's it. <laughs> but a lot of us don't want to think about that because as children in our society, we're taught that every kid is unique. Every kid is special. Have you ever heard that kind of stuff before? 
Oh yeah. Every kid is unique. Every every kid is special. What what you know what that does? That puts an extra burden of responsibility on that child that's unnecessary. Yeah. Then it teaches the kids that we're supposed to compete. You're supposed to keep proving to everybody that you're special. Yeah, and that that not being good at something is a threat. <laughs> mm-hmm. If we could teach our children to get along with each other, that everybody's the same. You can have your fun. He can have his fun. You guys can have fun together, and everything is easy going. If we teach our children like that, then we might not have such an industrialized society, but we would have a society that's more happy. Yeah. <laughs> we, instead of going for a、uh, gross national product, we could go for gross national happiness instead. <laughs> like the nation of Bhutan, it's the only nation that I know of that does not care about their gross national product. They care about their gross national happiness. Yeah.、Uh-huh. The Buddhist country, I've heard. <laughs> yeah, yeah w- one thing that's interesting about that, like, you know, what an economist might say in rebuttal, is that, you know, the earth or a utilitarian philosopher might say this, like the the strength of the of the GDP is that it's very clearly measurable, whereas happiness、um, isn't something that is as easy to measure. What's、right. so, so measurable? <laughs> it depends well, upon、that. the level of wisdom that the person has. If the person、oh. is stupid, if they are greedy, if they are a money bags already, then the criteria that they set will be for that kind of lifestyle. In the sense that they care about the gross national product、right. because they're looking for an advantage for themselves personally. Yeah, my my response to that to that framing of like that it's more easily measurable is well what's what's so what's so great or what's so important about being being measurable? <laughs> yeah, that that's a great point. I mean, you know, the economists would say that well, we can figure out the price of a nail because we understand supply and demand. We understand what the market will pay for it, and then the price of a nail arises. From all of these different forces that are interacting, you know, the cost of, you know,、uh, lead or whatever, or or metal or steel, whatever it is they use to make nails from. What's you know, the cost of lead where nobody wants any lead?、Mm-hmm. When everybody's got the idea, they got to take the lead out. It's zero. It's zero. But what's funny is, you know, because we have this giant interdependent system. Of capitalism that calculates these prices for products that becomes there is no system、security. that calculates the product. The cal- the price is always calculated. You talked about supply and demand. The word demand is just another word for tanha. Sure. Okay, sure. so supply and tanha means is that if I want something and there is no supply of it, then I'm suffering. And if I want something and it is available and I get it immediately, then there is no suffering. So yes, the entire teaching of the Buddha is based upon supply and demand. Wise, <laughs> wise wanting and wise,、uh, so that we only want things that we can get immediately, rather than wanting things that we don't have and can't have.、Mm-hmm. And so.、Um, 
you can say that well the world out there in the in the world of capitalism and the world of supply and demand is a system that keeps everyone in that system unsatisfied right. no one is really satisfied with the price of lead because they always walk away from that transaction thinking that i could have done a better deal mm -hmm. i paid too much for that lead Especially since I don't even need the lead anyway. I was just thought that I needed the lead. Now that I bought all that lead, I don't need that lead. Okay. And so we wind up with that kind of mentality of wanting things that we really don't need at all. But the guy who has the supply, he wants you to demand it mm -hmm. so that he can raise the price. The suppliers always set the price. They always set the price, and the price is what the market will bear. In other words, I'm going to charge you as much money as I can figure out how bad you want it. If you don't want it, then I can give me a little price for it. But mm -hmm. if you want it a lot, I can charge you an arm and a leg for it. Metaphorically, of course, I don't want really your real arm and your real leg. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So that's the whole point about the um, uh, the society, and it's also based upon everyone who is involved in that transaction is an enemy with each other. Mm -hmm. That that Walmart is my enemy because they have what I want, and I've got to go charge them. I've got to go bust down their door and walk into their group and grab what they have. And then pay the price on the way out. Okay, so in, that's that's the whole idea of the way that we think about things. That it's all a um, a matter of capitalism, and you're thinking about it at a gross or a very very large scale, to where it's better for us to think in a very very microscopic scale. In the sense of this is where my world is, because the macroscopic world is all conceptualization. We don't live in the real world out there. We live either in the real world that's around us, or we live in a conceptualized world about what's out there. And so in the real world that we live, the real world is actually quite small. And if we live in the real world of this quite small, then uh, operating wisely, we can operate to take care of one another, to live with friends. Um, possibly an example of that, let us say that you have this closed gated neighborhood where everybody who lives in this closed gated neighborhood were friends with each other. How many weed whackers does that gate close a closed gate community need? How many weed whackers does it need? Under no, <laughs> I use the word weed whacker, but we can use the word uh, lawnmower or hedge trimmer. Because in within that gated closed community, we only need one lawnmower. One lawnmower will cut all the yards in this whole gated community. One lawn trimmer would would cut all the uh, the trimmings of, that needed to be done. The hedge clipper, we only need one because we don't have that many edges. But the reality in American closed gated community is how many houses you have. That's how many lawnmowers you have. 
that's how many uh, hedge climbers you have. You see where I'm going with this? That's capitalism, where everybody has to be selfish and everybody's got to have their own thing to where in a social uh, closed community, one week of effort could be shared among everybody. Well, um, capitalists said, well, wait a minute, I build uh, weed whackers and I want to sell uh, an individual weed whacker to everybody in the community. Therefore, I do not want you to be social. I want you to be capitalistic like me. Well, they say uh, if I had my own weed whacker, then I could satisfy my craving to get rid of these weeds right now. I wouldn't have to wait. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but who cares about whether your weeds are whacked right now or not? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you say, aha, but some gated communities I know of, they've got an inspector who comes around and inspects your weeds and expects you to get them cut in a certain period of time. Well, that kind of, um, of regulation promotes capitalism. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. often it's uh, the the rules that make everybody in the community do or according to a certain thing is the kind of regulations that everybody hates to where uh, we have been uh, lied to and hoodwinked to think that the regulations that we that we should hate, we shouldn't hate them because we don't like regulations on the little things and therefore we should not put regulations on the guy who's just destroyed the entire river that thousands of people live on. Right. And so there's a certain kind of regulations that can be put into society simply because there is already greed built into the mindset of each individual person in that society. That in, the problem with socialism is that it only works when people are wise. Mm -hmm. And that when people are not wise, our socialism rots into capitalism, greed, ill will, taking what we want. Uh, and so capitalism uh, is what we've gotten used to as a society. And most of the students who I talk to, they want to find out how we can fix society. To where, in fact, society is not worth fixing. What's worth fixing is your own mind, and when your own mind is noble and, and high quality, then you don't care what condition society is in because it doesn't affect the mind state that you're in. Mm. Then you can truly, because your mind is set correctly, you can just enjoy the show without having to go fix it all. So we become non-critical of the world because we become non-critical of our own mind. If we become friendly with our own self, then we can be friendly with the world. We don't have to worry about what's wrong with it. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that's really, really hard for so many people because they have been taught that they are responsible to go fix what's broken. And because of that, they are doomed to be unhappy, even when they're told, hey, man, you don't have to fix anything. It's not broken. You say, yes, it is. I got to go fix it. And so there's the majority of the people are not going to be able to understand the, the Dhamma. The Dhamma is not for the masses. It's not for the society. The Dhamma is for the wise few. Welcome to the club, gentlemen. <laughs>
welcome to the club because uh, uh, we can think of it like this, that the army, they want a big army. They want millions of people in their army. They'll take anybody. They'll draft anybody. But the Marines, the Marines only want a few good men. <laughs> well, the society is like the army and the Sangha is like the Marines. We want just a few good people in it. Those who are capable of living a Dhamma life or a social life or a life of friendliness, a life of um, nobility. And that life of nobility is not concerned with the, with the problems of society because society really doesn't have any problems. All Each and every individual problem in society, no matter which problem it is, and you guys can think of several, there's always more than one point of view about it. Some people think it's, it's a problem. Other people will think it's a feature. Mm-hmm. Who's right? Well, the fact is, is that some, half the people or many of the people say that it's a problem and other people say it's a feature. We're not going to be able as an individual to go straighten out society like that. That's too big of a job. You'll wind up being frustrated. Better to stop trying to fix society because it's not broken. The only reason that society is broken is because everybody in society thinks it is. (laughs) But for you, it's not broken. Why? Because inside, you're not broken. But we have the idea that, oh, if we could fix society, then wouldn't my life be nice? If only the society out there ran according to the way that I would like it to run, then my life would be wonderful. Mm-hmm. Don't we all think that way? Mm-hmm. Let's go fix society so that I can feel good. Then, in fact, you can see that in Buddhist metta when we talk about it in the sense, may all beings be happy. May all beings be free from suffering. Or the worst of it is the bodhisattva ideal of everybody becomes enlightened before I become enlightened. But that looks to me more like I want everybody to shut up so I can have some peace and quiet. Why should I want to make everybody shut up so I can have some peace and quiet? All I have to do is go take a hike and go find a quiet place instead of trying to make society. I mean, fixing society is a lot of work. How many politicians do you have to bribe? How many different uh, policemen do you have to jail? I mean, what? how much can we do to fix society? Mm-hmm. Uh, the reality is, is that our own job is actually easy. If you could fix just one person's mind, whose mind would you fix? This one. <laughs> this one. The one yeah. that we can fix. The one yeah. that we have an opportunity to fix. The one that's right here, right now. And if we can fix this mind, I don't care about all the other minds. Maybe they can look at, at how we fix this one and they can fix that one too. Right. Speaking of taking a hike, I, I, I'm kind of fading fast now. It's like 1.30 over here. So I got I to gotta run. But this was yeah. lovely. Thank you so much. And Damarado, as always... Total pleasure. And, Andrew, <laughs> great, great to meet you. Best of luck on your path. And I hope to see you on the song I call tomorrow. Thanks. All right. Good night, guys. Or right. good morning. Good afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Good. I don't know what time of day it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's pretty, pretty early here, too. I might try and get some sleep as well. But thank you very much. All right. This has been a delightful talk. Yeah, it really has. Yeah. But I, I caution you, 
don't want anything out of this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I won't. (laughs) Okay. Well, we'll see you later, Andrew. All right. Talk to you later, Domerado. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.